You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Hey, good morning and happy Father's Day. Whether you're a father, prospective father, spiritual father, we trust that today will be a blessing to you in some way. It's good to, good to be here today. I guess Father's Day, for, for those of us who have had the experience, is kind of a, it's always a bit of a mixed one, isn't it? You know, there are the highs and the lows. There were those moments that you were, where you have just shone as a dad. You go, yes! <laughs> and there are those moments where <clears throat> we prefer not to talk about it, wouldn't we? We all, we all have them. But today is a celebration of the hope in Jesus Christ. We were um, house-sitting a house in the US on one occasion, and uh, one of the highlights of this particular house was it was in a suburb with 90 miles of golf cart track. It was amazing. And, and we had a golf cart that we were able to borrow as a family. And for some reason, we'd, we'd, we'd set off on a little bit of a trip. We'd stopped at a particular point and we loaded up. And, and I remember just that wonderful feeling of, of being at the, the wheel of a golf cart um, th- these things had power in them. Like they really could just take off. And uh, I remember just feeling there, being like, here I am, husband, father, luckiest man in the world. Wow. And look at this beautiful lake around us, pine trees, 90 miles of golf cart track at my disposal to explore. Everybody's on board. Let's go. And I dropped the foot to the floor and took off. And as I said, these things, without any noise whatsoever, have acceleration. And so um, I and, and the four kids took off into the wild blue yonder and Bron was still in the seating position on the back when the, the cart was removed from her. And, um, and there were squeals from the golf cart, well, not squeals of surprise, delight, uh, many things. And I realised I had duly left my, my wife um, Back, back 50 metres behind, somewhat, somewhat dazed. It was truly unexpected. And life is filled with those unexpected moments. And I think as, as fathers, we would love to say we, we always shine, but, but sometimes, sometimes we're a little tarnished in our efforts. And that was perhaps not one of my finest, finest fathering moments. But sometimes things come to us that are a little bit unexpected. Such are the ways of God. Isaiah 55, 9 says that our ways are actually not God's ways and that his ways are actually much higher and superior to our ways. The ways of God are surprising. So when it comes to trying to understand this thing called ministry, how we are to serve God by serving others, we shouldn't be surprised that we are often surprised. We're in a little bit of a series here, if you happen to be visiting, on learning to abide in Jesus Christ. The abide represents an acrostic. A means, well, we figure it's best to do that all together. B is the importance of being still in the presence of God, um, prayer and contemplating who he is, his very nature. We are singing about that a moment ago. I is for imitating Christ, imitating him in every way. But we're just having a little bit of a look at how do we imitate the ministry of Jesus Christ. Ministry is sometimes a funny sort of a word, but it simply means to serve. Simply means to serve. It's a little bit like a waiter that is, that is taking a chef that's been prepared 
uh, sorry, taking a chef, taking a dish that has been prepared by the chef. Waiters that take the chef instead of the dish usually get fired, tip, if you are going for a job. So the waiter usually takes the dish prepared by the chef over to a table. He didn't prepare the dish, the chef did that. He simply serves it. That's what ministry is a little bit like. God, uh, by his grace, is preparing many acts many beautiful wonders and works for his people all over the world and we get to be the waiters, we get to deliver them. And so we've been looking at that D is for being devoted to one another and E is envoys of grace. But thinking about ministry, thinking about how we serve God by serving one another, it can be a little bit unexpected. And I wanted to talk to you briefly this morning, this Father's Day, about the day the Pharisees fell off God's golf cart. It happened. It really did. The context here is John chapter 4. And we've just read, um, firstly, that Jesus says about ministry and about serving others, Jesus said that ministering, serving, is actually more enjoyable than food, which baffled the disciples. And then he goes on, in chapter 4, verse 34, he says that. In verse 35, he goes on to say that opportunities for ministry abound. There is no shortage of opportunities to serve God by serving others. And then we come to a very interesting story, and this is where the Pharisees fall off the golf cart. It's unexpected. They didn't see this coming. In chapter 5, we read a story about the, the healing at the pool. Now, there was this particular pool in Jerusalem, um, down by the Sheep Gate, this particular pool, which probably, traditionally speaking, people had associated with having magical healing powers. And even though by this time, you know, as good Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't believe in such things, nonetheless, superstitions tend to, well, they, 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 they tend to go on, don't they? And although the Pharisees probably would have frowned about, upon it, there were many who gathered around this pool believing that at times it would bubble and if you were able to be the first person into the pool, you would be magically healed. And so Jesus, not troubled by the, by the superstitions of people and so forth, he goes down to this pool area and, and he notices many, many people surrounding the pool. And I imagine that his heart would have been stirred as the people were hoping the waters would be. And while he's down there at the pool, we read that he sees um, a particular person who had been an invalid for th 38 years, nearly 40 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he sensed that this was one of those moments where God was serving up a very special dish for this lame man. And so he asks him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat walk. At once, the man was cured. And he did just what Jesus said. He picked up his mat and he walked, carrying his mat. Now what surprised the Pharisees was that they noticed a man walking through the city carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So they confront him with it and they say, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Look, you can't do that. That's technically, 
that's, that's work and you're working on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Why are you carrying your mat? And he simply explains, well, the person who just healed me healed you on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The person who just healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. So I did. So now the Pharisees are very interested not only in the man carrying the mat, but who is doing healings on the Sabbath? They said, well, who did this? He said, actually, I'm not sure. Later on, around the temple, we don't know if he's still carrying his mat or not, but this man sees Jesus again. And Jesus says to him on this occasion, see, you're well again. Now stop sinning or something worse may actually happen to you. And the man now knows that, aha, this is the one. And he told the Jewish leaders, I know who it was who healed me, it was Jesus. Well, he's very excited about that, but they're not. Why? Because he was healing on the Sabbath. So we come to the moment the Pharisees fell off the golf cart. They'd, they'd fallen off. They were so surprised. You see, sometimes there can be a, a separation between the way that we think that God should work and the way that God actually works. They thought God worked in certain ways and they thought that he wasn't definitely working on the Sabbath. But in verse 16, we read that, that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. God actually was at work apparently. And sometimes there is a gap between the way that we think that God should work and the way that he actually works. And maybe you've been surprised in this same way. Maybe actually you're sitting right in that gap at this very moment because you know from life's experiences that God often works this way. But on this occasion, he's surprising you. He's not. He's not working the way that you thought he might work. And you're sitting right in that gap between your experience and what God happens to be doing in this particular moment. Well, firstly, to understand the way that God actually works, we need to understand that God is always at work. He's always at work. The Father, in fact, is always at work, says Jesus in his defence, to this very day, and I too am working. Now, this sometimes surprises us more than it should. God is not just at work in that creation moment because we tend to think that, don't we? We tend to think, yes, the Holy Spirit's present with us and we're really grateful for that. Jesus, we know all about Jesus. He's, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But God, we tend to kind of relegate to, yes, he was probably very active at creation, made a few cameos throughout the Old Testament, but we don't see much of him after that, do we? No, no I, guess he's, I guess he's resting. Not true. Jesus kind of opens up the curtains and allows us to see, actually, his Father is very, very busy. God the Father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. The problem is we, we often don't see that, do we? And, and we often question this because in our own experience, we, we don't quite see how it's happening. Um, some years ago, I was able to see... a. Um, OM's base in, in Vienna, in Austria. Now, this was quite a famous base because, because this was, this was their, their 007 operations base. This is where they used to make, make vans. And I've actually got a picture of, of visiting the base and, and one of the vans. 
that they used to use to smuggle Bibles into Eastern Europe. And they actually, uh, that's, that's not me, that's one of the engineers, they actually said the, the engineers took great delight in, in making these vans. And he said, Stuart, see if you can pick, see if you can pick where we used to hide the Bibles. And I was looking, looking the van all over and I, I could not pick it. And eventually he removes this little, little uh, piece of wood there and he shows this false floor. It's actually a few inches higher than it should be. And, and that's where they would actually hide the Bibles. Well, a good friend of mine, Mark Kretschmar, and his family were, were working out of, out of Austria and they were smuggling Bibles into Romania. He and his family... Yes, they were taking Bibles to Doini's mother. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Mark was um, there. He had a um, uh, two-month-old uh, child, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. So he and his family were asked again, would you take another van load? And it was the middle of winter, very, very cold. And Mark, Mark recalls driving, driving into Romania and, and the van, the heating was shot for some reason. There was this clapped out old van and, and it was filled with Bibles. It was, it was driving into Romania. It was so cold, he said, there were icicles inside the van. And in the middle of the night, he's, he's driving, driving through Romania. And I remember him actually, because Mark's a dear friend, but I remember him breaking up as he told this story because it really, really got to him. He said, I was driving in the middle of the countryside, in the black, not knowing if the secret police were, were there going to pull us over or what, just thinking, what am I doing? His wife Penny was with him, his three young kids. It was cold as, what am I doing with this van full of Bibles? We could get arrested any moment and, and I don't even know if my contact person is actually going to be there to meet. And he couldn't quite see how God was at work. In that moment... He wondered if it was worth it all. And, he, and in that moment, he asked himself the question, how is this all going to work out? I just don't see where God is at work here. In um, my most recent trip, coming through Brunei, I, I had one of, those, one of those moments in customs. I, I created the moment myself. Actually, I've got a photo too. This is not me and the customs guy at Brunei. I've got to get better at selfies. I don't do that. That's actually an inspector in Bali just minutes after he was about to arrest me, but we became good buddies. <laughs> anyway, I was in Brunei and it was my, of my own making. The flight was delayed and I wanted to go back to the area where there was a restaurant and so not, not being one to sit still, I, I asked a few questions and <laughs> surprisingly... One of the airline staff said, sure, just go through here and let me into this secure area. And there I was, all of a sudden the door shut behind me and I was thinking, what have I done? Like, where, where are you? And I was wandering through the corridors, the, 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 the back of Brunei International Airport, thinking any minute now, oh dear, I'm going, to, I'm going to be arrested. And then finally finding some customs officers who were very surprised to find me there, as surprised as I was to be there. And negotiating customs is a, is a tricky thing. Peter Conlon, uh, also an OMA, recalls and tells the story of in the very early days, um, they were trying to get OM's first ship, the Logos, into Dubai. Now, this is very, very early days. Don't think Dubai like it is today. Think Dubai way, 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 way back before it was sort of, sort of a, a hub in the Middle East. And he was, he was trying to arrange for the ship to, to go to Dubai. He arrives at customs not realising that he needed a visa. 
He just, just thought being British was a passport everywhere. But it wasn't, and he was duly arrested. And at that moment, in the Dubai airport, arrested, feeling like an utter failure, he also was, was just asking himself the question, where are you at work, God? How are you at work in this situation? And we often find ourselves in those situations. We often ask ourselves, God, are you really at work? Are you really always at work to this very day? Are you at work in this situation? And the trick is in this moment to believe that God is always at work and to trust him. And sometimes I think part of the point of us coming together and gathering together on a Sunday is to align our beliefs once more because Monday to Saturday we take a few shots, don't we? And it erodes away at our belief system. Sunday we come back together again, open up God's word together and remind ourselves, align our belief system once more to what God says is true. And what he says is true is that he is always at work to this very day. So I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know how difficult your situation is, but I can promise you this. He is at work in that situation. You might not see it. The trick is to trust him. Trust him. And then Jesus goes, goes on to, to help us grasp this ministry philosophy even more. So the first thing we need to do is to understand that the Father is always at work. We need to trust him there. Now the second thing that we need to understand is that when he lets us see what he is doing, he does so because he loves us. He lets us see what he is doing because he loves us. Now notice that Jesus said, my father is always at work. Yes, even we know from verse 9 on the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 20 that the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. The father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Well, down by the pool, Jesus was walking by and he notices this man and he hears, he learned, it seems, that he had been lying there for some time. In verse 8, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, then he asks the question. So it seems that... Jesus was down by the pool. He sees this man's particular sad state and then he learns, he gathers more information that this has been the case for some 38 years and in that moment, the father shows him, son, I'm at work here. I'm going to do something. Why does the father show the son that? Because he loves him. The father loves the son and he shows him when he's at work, when he's about to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. Because the father loves the son, he shows him these things. Now we might ask the question, well, I sometimes get the feeling that the father isn't showing me things. Does that mean he doesn't love me? He'll always show you enough to know that you are loved. But never so much that faith will be shoved. He will always show you enough so that you will know that you are loved. Never so much that faith will be shoved. Do you understand that? 
When we don't see as much as we want to see, it's because he's building our faith, not because he fails to love us. But because he loves us, he will always show you just enough, as one of my friends put it many, many years ago, enough light for the next step. You might not see everything that God is up to. Well, that would be to eliminate faith, wouldn't it? But you'll have enough to show you the next step and enough to know he loves you. He loves you and he loves to, to show you how he is at work. Or well, Mark Kretschmar and his family in Romania there finally found this particular road, this stretch of road. They were using maps, no GPS in these days. It was, it was dark. He sees a car pulled over on this, this rural road, on the side of the road, and he pulls in behind it, flashes his, his headlights, pulls over, shuts off the engine, turns off the lights. This has got to be done in dark. And, uh, and people come towards him, and even as they're coming towards him in the dark, he's sizing them up, he's, he's trying to work out, are they the real deal? Is this the pastor of the local town? They are sizing Mark up, is this the real deal? Is this a setup? And finally they greet and they realise it's real. God has put them together. This pastor and his wife have, have also risked everything to come out onto this particular road to pick up these Bibles. So they go round to the back of the van and they start to unload the Bibles and, and, and as the pastor's wife sees them, she, she holds one up. And with a little bit of light, she opens it and she realises these particular, this particular batch of Bibles are children's Bibles. They're all of them. They're children's Bibles. And she just starts crying and weeping and she just says to Mark, Mark, children all over Romania are going to be able to praise God because of you. And in that moment, Mark says, I could see how God was at work. It was worth it all. It was worth it all. Peter Conlon, stuck, arrested in Dubai airport, concludes that this can't be the way the trip is supposed to finish. And he sees a British pilot walking by and he and he pleads with him. He says, listen, this has happened. I didn't realise I needed a visa. Can you, can you help me at all? Can you, can you intercede for me here somehow? And the British pilot, seeing that Peter was a reasonable guy, he says, all right, let me see what I can do. And he has a quick chat with the, with the customs agent and he says, well, how long do you want to stay here? And Peter says, listen, just, just today, I'll, I'll go out tonight on the next flight. If I could just have the day, that would be wonderful. He says, all right, but I'm keeping your passport. You've got a day. And so Peter thanks him. He heads out to the airport and he's never been to Dubai before. He catches a taxi. He knows his destination. He wants to go down to the port authority so that he can see if the, the ship, the Logos, can, can come in. He has no appointment. He arrives at the, the office of the, the port official, knocks on the door and, and the guy is busy. He's got these blueprints on his desk and he's folding them up. He doesn't even look up and he says, you know, yes, what, what, what is it? And he says, oh, I, I wanted to, to talk to you about a, a particular ship called the Logos that's coming. He said, I haven't got time. He said, have you got an appointment? Peter said, no, I don't. He said, I haven't got time. I'm, I'm off to see the king, well, the sultan of Dubai. Peter, Peter just says, oh, so am I, thinking that he would love to see the king. And the guy looks up from him and he says, really? 
He says, yes. I mean, that was on his wish list. He would love to see the Sultan of Dubai if he could. And he says, all right, well, come with me. So next thing, they're sitting in this guy's air-conditioned Mercedes-Benz and they're off to, to see the king of Dubai. And Peter realises moments later as he's standing with the port official in front of the Sultan of Dubai, all of a sudden the predicament that he's in. Like, what did I say back there? What am I doing? And what brought it to his attention was these bodyguards, he was guessing were bodyguards, standing there with, with hawks on their arms. And he was thinking to himself, I wonder what the hawks are for. Is that for the wrong answer? You know. <laughs> and so Peter's standing there and, and the, the king says to him, so uh, uh, you go first. And he points to Peter. And Peter was hoping that he wouldn't go first so that he could have some time to think. But uh, he says, well, um, you know, uh, I've come to see if I can arrange for a ship called the Logos to, to come to, you know, to this country, to your, to your state. And, um, and he tells the king all about it and the king says, that's a great idea, done. Anything else? And Peter says, well, there's, there is the issue of a visa. <laughs> And the king says, okay, well, let, let me make a phone call. And Peter, and I think it's still valid to this day, was granted a lifetime visa to, <laughs> to Dubai. <laughs> you see, we need to learn in situations to ask, God, what are you doing? Here is a predicament that is most unexpected. I feel like I've fallen off your golf cart here. I did not see this coming. What are you doing, God? What is it that you are up to in this particular situation? And you can trust that because he loves you, he will show you enough, not so much that it will totally eliminate faith, but he will show you enough and he will show you what he is doing because he loves you. And then lastly, we need to understand the importance of copying our dad. On their best day, dads can do some things which are quite outstanding. Mm -hmm. Copy that. Your heavenly father consistently is doing outstanding things all over the world and he invites you to join him. I wondered whether we saw an instance of that even this morning. I don't know if Sam and Andrew realised it but Sam was praying about the refugee you know, situation and, and, and ask you, Lord, we don't know what to do, but we cry out to you. We have a little bit of a meet and greet. Andrea comes up, and what does she present? Operation Christmas Child. Have we not just seen? Has the Father just not shown us a little bit of, of how we might be able to respond to the very crisis that we were praying about just minutes beforehand? Did you make that link? Isn't God good? He shows us what he's doing in given situations. You could look at a global catastrophe like that or you could look at just a little situation in your family or at work right now and ask the Heavenly Father, would you please show me how you're at work? And then join him. Copy your dad. When you see your dad at work, join him. In verse 19, Jesus gives them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. Ever felt that way? That's reality. That's reality. The son can do nothing by himself. He limited himself purposefully so that we have a perfect model 
for how to go about ministry. He can do only what he sees his father doing. And he goes on, because whatever the father does, the son also does. In answer to how did Jesus do the miracles? Whatever the father does, the son also does. That's how. Can you do miracles? Jesus said you would do even greater things than what I have done. Yes. The answer is yes. By God's grace and power. God is always at work. He loves you and he's going to let you see what he's doing. And when he shows you, take it, as Henry Blackaby says, take that as an invitation to join him. He's asking you, see what I'm doing? Come, you can play too. Come and join me. Come and join me. I love nothing more than to do my work through my children. He consistently did that with Jesus and he would love to do that with you as well. But Jesus experiences this. The man says, you know, well, I can't get into the pool. Quite often, we associate faith with a miracle. On this occasion, it didn't even require faith on the man's part. God was at work and Jesus was authorised to heal. That's what the father was doing. So he says to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the father, who was at work, immediately, as it were, authorises grace from heaven to flow and that man is instantly healed. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. There is the harmony of the Trinity. There is the Father and the Son at work with the Spirit upon the Son performing the Trinitarian ministry, the work of God. There is total harmony between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And when we minister to instead of feeling at odds with God so often, we need to understand that we simply need to cooperate with God. That's the secret formula, if you like, to effective ministry. It is simply being in harmony with God and his purposes in that given moment. We simply need to join him. When he shows us what he's doing, we join in with what it is that God is doing. In a general sense, what is the Father doing? Well, the Father's on a rescue mission. He's on a rescue mission to save the world. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son, Jesus. There is the harmony again. God loves the world. It needs saving. He sends his son. And Jesus is the answer. Can Jesus do it in his own strength? We know because of the hypostatic union, he's both God and man. The spirit is poured out upon Jesus. And he does his ministry through the spirit, the same spirit that is poured out upon you and I as well. The Father is about a rescue mission and he's always at work. This world needs saving and guess who's doing it? God the Father. God so loves the world he sent his son. We know that verse, don't we? God still loves the world and he's now sending you and I. He's still on his rescue mission. We're going to take communion in just a moment. I'm going to... In invite Dan to join me and we're going to take our time about it. Actually, today we've got a little bit of time, it's been factored in, so you can relax. And we'd like you to to be able to understand a little bit more about the harmony between the Father and the Son 
when it, when it comes to the cross. Because I'm guessing that when it comes to healing a man at a pool, you don't have a problem, do you, in seeing that the Father and the Son are in perfect harmony. But what about when it comes to the cross? How does that work? Jesus described his ministry in different ways. In Luke chapter 4, verses 43... He says that he was sent to proclaim the good news. Now, in proclaiming the good news, preaching, no problem seeing harmony is there between the Father and the Son. That's, yeah, 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 good news. Preaching good news, that's easy. I can see that God's at work there. And, and then in Luke chapter 19, verses 10, Jesus describes his mission in a, in a little bit more of a developed form. He says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Yep, that makes sense. I can see the harmony between the Father and the Son there. Absolutely. He's come to seek and to, to save those who are lost. Absolutely. But then in Mark chapter 10.45, there's this startling revelation of the ministry of Jesus. On this occasion, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And by the way, that word serve there is the same word that we use for ministry, diakonia. That's it. The Son of Man has come to minister. The Son of Man has come like a waiter. And what is he serving up? He's come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Imagine that. Jesus understands that the next dish that the Father wants to serve for the sake of all humanity is the life of his Son. He is to give his life as a ransom for many. That's ministry. Let's, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you came to proclaim the good news, that you came to seek and save the lost, and that you did not come to be served, but you came to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. This is almost too wonderful for us to understand, Lord. But we thank you for this, this ultimate demonstration of your love for us. And as we, as we celebrate, as we come and, and as we drink from this cup which reminds us of your blood which was shed, as we break the bread which reminds us of your body that was broken, we remember that you have given your very life on our behalf. And we want to thank you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.